Psalm 63. A Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you this time. Pray that you would teach us through your word. God, would you direct my words to represent your scripture? And uh, for the believer here today, that you would encourage us. And for anyone here that has never trusted in you, that today would be the day of salvation. Amen. Amen. A friend of mine once told me that he had run in a marathon. Uh, that's, that's a lot of miles. I don't know if you know how long that is. It's 26.2 miles. So he trained and trained and trained and then told me afterwards about his experience. Now, I don't like to run errands, so I don't think running 26.2 miles would be my thing. But he, he was excited about it. And uh, he told me at one point in the race, he had been running and running and running, and he was thirsty, as you can imagine. And if you've ever run a long race, there'll be tables with volunteers, and they'll pass out water or Gatorade for those who are thirsty. And so he finally approached one of these hydration stations, and he, uh, came to, he, he grabbed a cup of cool, refreshing water and was excited to take a drink, but he realized that it was not cool, refreshing water that he had taken a drink of. It actually was dry, bitter beer. Someone had thought it was funny to set up a table and pass out cups of beer, and he instantly spit it out. Uh, not that he doesn't enjoy beer, but probably because in that moment, he was longing for water. We all have thirst that God has created us with uh, that have, can only be satisfied by specific needs. Uh, the need for water. We all thirst for water. We all hunger for food. We all need sleep and oxygen, and it's only a matter of time until, uh, if you don't have those things, that you'll die. But when we read this morning, we we find out that we actually have God-given needs, a God-given need for God that is superior to our physical needs, that we long most, most of all for communion with God. Our, Our psalm opens up with an introduction that David is the source of this psalm, and he wrote it while in the wilderness of Judah. Commentators uh, talk, you know, they disagree about when in David's life this was. Perhaps it was in 1 Samuel when he's on the run from King Saul, or maybe it's in 2 Samuel when he's on the run from his son Absalom, who, uh, whose sister was heinously abused by another one of his brothers. And so Absalom kills his brother and then over time develops the same anger and bitterness for his father, King David. I would 
pick the latter of those two situations, mostly because in the, the 11th verse of our psalm, David refers to himself as king. But the king shall rejoice in the Lord. Uh, David rarely referred to himself as king while King Saul was alive. Uh, and, and respect for Saul and for love for his friend Jonathan. So I, I'm going to kind of preach this morning with the latter in view. So imagine being David. You're on the run for the second time. You're already running for your life from King Saul. Now you're running for your life from your son. You've been told over and over again that you are the rightful king. You've even experienced that for a season of your life. And yet right now you're homeless. You have armies at your command, and yet you're without protection. You're away from your family and your loved ones. You're rich, and you have access to so much, and yet you're in the wilderness and probably running out of basic needs, water, food, shelter. You've retreated to the wilderness, tired and thirsty. That's David's background. He's in a literal wilderness. He's in a metaphorical wilderness, And alone with his thoughts, he writes this, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Three points will frame our time this morning if you'd like to take notes. The first point is this, a godly thirst which will come from stanza one. The second point, a quenched thirst, which we'll find in the second stanza. And the last point, an end to our thirst, which comes from the third stanza. So we're going to look at the first stanza, a godly thirst. Look at verse one again. Oh God, you are my God. David begins declaring that God is his God. His ability to survive the wilderness is rooted in God himself. I love that the psalm begins with, oh God. It it takes all of our attention and focus and puts it on God. Not our situation, but but on God. Almost like in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God, where the author of Genesis is helping us see who's the main character of the story. It's God. God is the source of creation. And similarly, in Psalm 63-1, David teaches us, That it's God who's the main character of this story. It's God who's the origin and source of our deepest longings and needs. And if we're going to have our deepest longings satisfied, we won't be able to do it apart from God, our creator. And then he, he, David continues to write, Oh God, you are my God. Which shifts our focus on God being a covenantal God. This language of my God is personal. Often used in scripture, when God makes a covenant with his people, where he will tell a person or a group of people that I am your God, that he will give them, he promises to give them rest and redemption. So perhaps David is reflecting on when God made a covenant with Moses and the Israelites when they were freed from Egypt, and he promises to be their God in Exodus 19. Or maybe he's remembering shortly before this in 2 Samuel 7, where God told him, that from his offspring, from the offspring of David, there will be an eternal kingdom, and that God will cut off all of David's enemies. God tells him that in 2 Samuel 7. Perhaps he's in the midst of the wilderness believing, God said this to be true, and my God will do it. So in one line, David teaches us that we were first and foremost created to look to God as our creator 
and our faithful Redeemer, and that we'll never be truly satisfied until we turn to him. God made us with a godly thirst. Augustine said it this way, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until we finally rest in God. David clearly believes that with every essence of his being. Follow the next line in verse 1. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. A funny thing to say in the wilderness. I feel like I would write a psalm and I would write, uh, Lord, you are great and I'm thirsty for water. And will you provide? And I think that would be merited. He could have written that. But instead, he takes a moment to reflect on his spiritual need for God. You don't have to take middle school biology to know that it's only a matter of days if David is without water that he'll die. And yet he is focused, more importantly, on his soul crying out for God, thirsting for God. And then he claims that his flesh, his body, is in unison. My flesh faints for you. When he, his body could be fainting from the heat. Instead, he's focusing on the reality that his soul and body are in unison. His inner and outer self for a moment are longing together for God. They're in harmony singing a song that he desperately desires God. Does that mean that David isn't physically thirsty or that the outer elements aren't taking a toll on his actual flesh? Of course not. Of course he is thirsty. Of course the elements are uh, creating his body to waste away in the wilderness. But when he's faced with his human limits... He realizes his spiritual need for God is deeper and greater and superior to his physical needs. And then he further reiterates his godly thirst by explaining in verse 3 that he's able to worship God wholeheartedly, even in the wilderness, because God's love is better than life. Verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. David thirsts for God, who is a God of steadfast love. Again, covenantal language, that God is loyal, that God is faithful, that he has made a covenant with David, and he will come through on his promises. He's thinking back to the promises God's made to his people, that God will never leave them or forsake them, and David believes it. He's clinging to that truth, and he's able to see in the midst of his body wasting away, Jesus is promises, God's promises are eternal. My body is temporary. I choose God. Paul teaches something similar in Philippians 1.21. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul, like David, had this confidence in Jesus. He believed that God's steadfast love was better than his life. For Paul, he would say, you can, you can have my money, you can have my house, you can have my job, you can have my power, you can have everything. You can throw me in prison. I don't care because Jesus has my soul, and he promised he will keep it to the end. And I believe it. He trusts God. That's confidence. That's power. That's hope in the midst of suffering. And Christians have access to that confidence. Like Paul, like David. When we experience and believe that God's love is, is better than life. He tasted it in the wilderness and believed that one day God would bring that, to, uh, that fruit to fruition. And we're going to see that more on the end of the psalm. I just wanted to pause on that, that statement of God's love being 
steadfast love being better than life. I had the opportunity, like I said earlier, to go to, to a Young Life camp. We took about 60 teenagers from Westchester uh, to a Young Life camp, and the whole week we wanted to ex- show them the steadfast love of God. And when we got home, a mom the next day sent me this email. And I, I want to read it to you, and then I, I want to ask you a question. This is what the mom said about her daughter who came to Young Life camp and experienced the steadfast love of God firsthand, encountered God. She wrote this, I honestly don't know how to thank you for what you all did for my daughter this week. She has struggled with mental health issues since she was 12 years old. We have tried everything to help her, but the challenges continue. She came home last night like a new person. She said that she had been saved by Jesus, and for the first time, she can remember the demons in her head are silent. I was literally in tears last night listening to her describe the power of prayer and the experience she had at camp. We can't thank you enough. So let me ask you, when's the last time you encountered God's love in a way that you responded, his love is better than life? Do you believe that? Do you live like God's love is the thirst that you're longing for most? As I mentioned earlier, we all have natural physical thirst. We thirst for water. But for David, every time he is thirsty for water in this moment, he uses it to remind him what he thirsts for most. And I would encourage you as well that every time we long for friendship and community, that we would be reminded that we long for intimacy with Jesus. And every time that we hunger, we have the, moment, we have the opportunity to pause and be reminded and remind those around us that we hunger to feast on the bread of life, Jesus. And every time that we desire sleep, not that sleep is bad, sleep is good, but it's a reminder, especially when you can't have it, that we don't have a true eternal rest until we are with Jesus. Uh, In Philippians 4.19, Paul writes, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Lindsay and I love to tell our kids, especially when they ask for toys, uh, listen, mommy and daddy's bank account, if you looked at it, would not say that we are rich. We are lacking. And yet, we are rich in Jesus. Rich in love, rich in purpose, rich in hope, rich in joy, rich in family, the family of God. We're rich. As are all who thirst for God. So what do you thirst for? Where do you relieve your thirst for life? What is so essential to your existence that you would do anything to have it? What desires are driving your life right now? Is it God? Are you seeking him earnestly? Or is it something else? Is it your job? Is it your family's comfort or success? Is it to be accepted and loved by others? Is it the amount of likes that you get on a social media post? Is it being right in your arguments with a coworker or with your spouse or with someone online? Do you thirst uh, for things that lead to addiction, like a substance or pornography? Do you desire to not be alone so much that you're willing to enter into an ungodly dating or marriage relationship? Do you desire to have control of your life? Do you thirst for that? Do you crave it so much so that you turn to others and control their lives? and manipulate the ones you love? 
passages like Psalm 63 confront our deepest desires. So I would encourage you, if you're a believer, to spend some time, maybe even today, reflecting on what do you thirst for most? And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, maybe you're still figuring out what you think about God, and maybe in your mind you say, yeah, I do thirst for those things. What's so bad about that? You could ask any of the members here, and they would tell you, hey, I've tried to satisfy my thirst and the things of this world, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. David's going to show us where he goes in a moment to quench his deepest thirst. Last thing from this stanza. This is my longest point. <laughs> he then, David then tells us where he used to go to find his thirst quenched, but in the moment he cannot. Look at verse 1 again. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Verse 2, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Remember, David's writing this psalm in the wilderness. Without access to worship God in the corporate sanctuary, amongst the people of God. So he looks back when he thinks about his thirst for God and remembers that he longs to be with the people of God. For David, his thirst for God is connected to his thirst to being with the people of God. Probably at this point, because at this point in redemptive history, God's spirit dwelled in the temple. And so he longed to be in the presence of God with the people of God because there's a, an element of worshiping God with the people of God and God's presence that you can't experience alone. Not that you can't uh, worship God alone. We're going to see in a moment that's what David does in the midst of not being with the people of God. But I was encouraged the last couple of weeks thinking about this. And I want to challenge you. When you're not with the people of God, does your heart long to be with to be with them. Not because God only dwells in this building. Uh, God's spirit dwells everywhere. But at the same time, Paul tells us that now the new temple are the people of God, that God's spirit dwells in you. And when we come together, we experience God, we, we worship God, we encounter God in a way that we can alone. And it brings him glory, and we can encourage one another. On days when we don't believe that God's love is better than life, we can remind each other of that truth. I wonder how often you miss the people of God when you're away from them. A godly thirst, now we're going to focus on the second stanza, a quenched thirst. Read with me. Now follow along. Verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you your right hand upholds me. In lieu of not being able to satisfy his godly thirst in the public corporate sanctuary, David goes to the private, quiet, quiet moments of his day in his bed. Listen to his confidence of how his soul will be satisfied. Verse 1, or verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. That, that is language of, of a big banquet feast. That he, he knows that when he is with God, his soul is feasting. And he's experiencing a foretaste of that now. And we're going to see he longs for the day, in stanza three, where that will completely be true. Nowhere in scripture does the Bible say that uh, every day we need to worship God privately for 30 minutes. Maybe you call it a quiet time or a devotion. 30 minutes where 
20 is reading the Bible and five is journaling and then five is, is uh, praying. There's not, there's not a passage that says that, but there are passages like this that remind us that for us, uh, part of, of worshiping God, there's an element, a dynamic that is alone in the private moments of our day. For David, in his bed, praying and reflecting on who God is, his promises found in God's word. Look at verse six. There's two dimensions that David gives us a picture of, of what his personal worship looks like with God. Verse six, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. He tells us for him, and I would imagine for all of us, which is why it's in scripture, an element of worshiping God privately consists of remembering God. Spending time rewiring the way we think to think about God the way that God wants us to think about him. In 2 Peter 1, when Peter is about to die and he's giving his last words to the saints, he says this, I will, in verse uh, chapter 1, 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter wants us to remember God because we are prone to forget. David spends time remembering who God is, what he's done, and consequently then who he is. I think uh, one thing we could pull from this is it's really hard to remember who God is apart from God's special revelation in his word. So I think I can say confidently that an element of our personal worship of God, a a, a time, a devotional time where we're with God in in the quiet of our day, it should be centered around the word of God, that we might remember who he is. David says he remembers upon his bed. Don't forget, he's in the wilderness. So I can't imagine his bed is that comfortable. But he doesn't let the uncomfortability distract him from God. He actually uses his uncomfortable bed to help him lean into and find comfort in God. I think we can make a lot of excuses of how our life is uncomfortable and busy, and we don't have time to stop and meditate and remember who God is in the quiet of our day. Maybe we feel like we have no quiet. I would say even in those uncomfortable moments, can we then let that spur us on to find comfort in God? And then he says he meditates on God and the watches the night. This Hebrew word is translated here as meditate, but in other places in the Old Testament, it's translated in English uh, to mutter or moan. So one, one commentator thought, well, perhaps the element of remembering is a silent reflection in our thoughts of who God is. But then for David, there's also a component where he's meditating and muttering and moaning and saying out loud who God is. I was convicted about this the last couple of weeks. I've been trying in my own personal time with the Lord to pray out loud. I usually just am quiet in my thoughts, and then all of a sudden I'm thinking about something else. But when, I, when I've been praying out loud, it's helped me focus in and meditate on who God is. And he does it in the watches of the night. Throughout the night, David is in the desert, muttering and moaning and meditating on God. Why is he up in the middle of the night? Maybe because his bed's uncomfortable? Perhaps he, there's an element where he, he knows he has to sleep with one eye open. His son is, is hunting him down. He's in the desert. Perhaps there's wildlife that he's afraid. 
And so he, instead of complaining and writing about how he needs a comfortable bed and needs sleep, he, he lets that spur him on to worshiping God. As I read this, I was reminded of when our first daughter was born, Millie. And when you're a new parent, uh, you just, it doesn't matter how many times people say it's going to be hard to wake up in the middle of the night. It's really hard. I tried to prepare myself mentally, and I just wasn't ready. And I remember, uh, you know, Lindsay would, would, was the one who mostly got up. But occasionally she would wake me up. She's a saint. She still does that. Uh, she would wake me up and say, hey, trust me, she's not hungry, so it's your turn. And I'm just trying to get Millie back to sleep, and I'm, I'm rocking her, and I'm, I'm pretty upset about it, so I'm, like, really rocking her, but just, you know, just save enough. You know, there's an appropriate amount. You parents know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and uh, just please go to sleep. The, the interruption of, of my sleep and my plan, and, and it frustrated me. But at some point, halfway through trip, having trip, I realized I'm already up. I might as well worship God. <laughs> so I would, uh, especially with Ruthie, I've been getting my, my Bible ready, especially this first couple weeks when Lindsay needed a lot of help. I, I, before I went to bed, I got my Bible set up. I like get some, some earbuds out, ready to listen to some worship music, anything. I'm already up. I might as well meditate on God. So, so let me ask you. Where do you look to quench your thirst for God? Is it in daily personal worship? Is it in the moments where you're frustrated with what the world throws at you, but instead you, are in, you use that to spur you on and remind you of your need for God? Remembering and meditating. If you've never spent time alone worshiping God in the private moments of your day and you don't know where to start, you could ask any member of our church. We would love to tell you what we've been reading, what we've been learning, how we've been meditating, how we've been remembering the Lord and what he's done. And another question I want to ask you is, what's the first thing you let your eyes see in the morning? David said he seeks God earnestly. Probably alluding to the fact that you can only seek something earnestly if, if you do it all the time. And... and Rarely could you say, I did this earnestly, but I slept in. None of us are perfect, but what's the first thing that you seek earnestly in the morning? I was reading a book, and the author in one chapter talked about the battle he has every morning, about what his eyes see first. What does he remember first? What's he meditate on first? And he talked about how, uh, how dangerous this thing can be. He said often if he opens up his phone the first thing and he, he opens up a social media app, he will shape his mind, not on purpose, but because social media does this. He, his mind and his heart will be framed and shaped to look throughout his day for his value and meaning in what other people think about it. Or perhaps you look at email first, setting yourself up to frame your day and shape your heart to find your value and meaning in your job performance and what you do, and your to-do list, and what you accomplish. Perhaps the first thing you see when you wake up is the news. And we, we need to know what's going on in the world. But if we do it first thing, it can shape our heart and our mind to have fear and anxiety and wonder, is there even value and meaning in the world? Or do we turn to the Word of God? First thing, 
even for a moment, and shape our heart and mind to remember that we're children of God for those who believe and that our value and meaning comes from him alone. Let us seek God earnestly by worshiping him in our bed early in the morning and through the watches of the night that our soul may be quenched of its thirst for God. A godly thirst, a quenched thirst, and lastly, the end to our thirst. Look at Psalm 63, 9 through 11. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouth, the mouths of liars will be stopped. David makes this comparison. Remember verse 1. He is someone who is seeking God earnestly. Now in verse 9, he brings up those who seek to destroy his life. We aren't told much about these people, these enemies, what it looks like that they're seeking him down and how they do it. David instead acknowledges that these people are seeking something other than God, seeking death. But he quickly moves on to what's the result? What's the end of their thirst apart from God? And he writes that they shall go down into the depths, in the grave, perhaps alluding to Sheol, the Old Testament concept of the realm of the dead, their, their plans will be thwarted, thwarted and their lives will be extinguished. And then we're told that they'll be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion of jackals. Ironically, whether this psalm is alluding to when he's running from Saul or Absalom, both of those characters in the Bible die in battle. They're given over to the power of the sword and they're not given a proper burial. It's this great reversal of Psalm 63 that that those who seek to to kill David and to leave him for dead in the wilderness actually brought that judgment on themselves. And why is this important to David? Because David knows he's in this in-between reality. He has the title of king, but he's being treated like a criminal. He believes that God's covenant promises are true, that God will cut off his enemies, but his momentary reality seems to be tipping in the favor of his enemies. He's had a foretaste of his longings being satisfied in God, but he's looking to the day when he will thirst no more. David's in this already and not yet situation where God's promises have started to be fulfilled and yet they haven't reached their full reality. And in the midst of that longing, he hopes and believes that God will come through. Listen to this language. He he, he knows, he's confident that God is going to do these things, though he hasn't yet. Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths. They shall be given over. They shall be apportioned for jackals. It hasn't happened yet, but he's convinced that God is a covenantal God. His promises are true. And then listen to the confidence he has And what God will do for him and all those who seek God earnestly. They shall rejoice. And all who swear by him shall exult. They'll sing praises to God. Different than those who who, uh, are spreading lies and will be silenced. They They shall continue forever singing praises to God. This psalm is not only true for David then, but true for us now. God has come in Jesus. And he has set the believer free from the power of sin. And yet, 
We're waiting. We're longing for the day when sin and death will be no more. For the believer who's struggling in the wilderness today, longing for the day when God will make all things right, let me stoke the fire of your hope. Jesus is coming back. He's promised it, and he will keep his promises. Your outer body may be wasting away, as Paul wrote earlier. But there will be a day when Jesus makes every injustice right. There will be a day when God makes all things new. Believer, you're in the already and not yet. So let me assure you, with the same confidence of David, that the king shall rejoice, and all who trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior will thirst no more. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, you've never uh, believed in him, you've never entered into a saving relationship with, with God where he is your Savior and your Lord, I must warn you that David tells us that their end will be swift and that their deepest thirst will not be quenched. That they will spend a godless eternity apart from him. For all of us who are not in Christ. But praise be to God that the great king, greater than David, has come. That Jesus came to die in your place. And he said in John 8, 37-38, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Maybe you're here this morning and you're tired of looking to the world to satisfy your thirst. You're tired of, like the woman at the well, going to all these wells of the world and remaining thirsty. Jesus has come, the great king. He's endured the wilderness of the cross, bearing your shame, cut off from his father, so that you would never be cut off from the source of living water ever again. Trust in him. Come to him, believer, and thirst, non-believer, and thirst no more. Come to him, believer, wandering in the wilderness of life, and experience water now, and one day you will never thirst again. There is eternal water for those in the wilderness who believe. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this song, for the ways that you have in history moved in your people's lives and then given us the special revelation of your word that we might know your promises. Help us to believe in them. Help us to cling to your truth when our reality says something different. May we thirst for you above all else. And we know, Lord, that you will come through on your promises. And for those this morning that are doubting that your promises are true, Lord, we all doubt in moments. May this morning encourage us to continue to cling to Christ and come to him for living water. Amen.